Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste are right behind you! (laughs) I'm your host, the Crypt Keeper. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in, boils and ghouls. Ooh, you're, you got a good one, too. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, my name is William DeBiani. I am a film critic for The Rap, Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. And my mother was a mummy. No. Uh... <laughs> my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN and other sites as well, if they'll have me. Oh, they'll have you. Oh, they'll, they'll have me in a big way pretty soon. Soon enough. This is my year. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I feel good about it. Um, yeah, and this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing a bunch of new releases, including The Invisible Man. St. Francis, Greed, and All the Bright Places. As opposed to the Dark Places. Well, all, yeah. All the Bright Places, which is a, a teen romantic tragedy. Yeah, so we got a uh, uh, new hit horror movie, uh, comedy nobody knows about, a under-the-radar drama nobody knows mm. about, and a teen romance that, well, it's on Netflix, so it's you, on, might, yeah. you, might be, you might have seen it. If it sort of auto-populated at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Invisible Man is steamrolling over everything. The Invisible Man's and, a big deal. Yeah, it was made on a budget of $7 million. I think it already made about 30 Yeah, uh, which is, like, you know, pretty modest as far as, like, the biggest opening weekends go, mm-hmm. but for a movie of that size, of that scale, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. You know, the last time Universal tried to reboot one of their classic Universal horror properties, it was the Tom Cruise Mummy, mm-hmm. and even though that film made, what was it, like, $400, $500 million because it costs so much, it, it that was up, nothing. It ended up losing a lot of money. If The Invisible Man made $400 million, it'd be a really big deal. Mm-hmm. So what they've done with this new Invisible Man movie is gone back to basics. Now, not the basics of H.G. Wells' story, which has been changed so much that H.G. Wells' name literally isn't in the credits. Of this one that is called The Invisible Man. Yeah, not even in the thank yous, which I was like, even I, Frankenstein, <laughs> put Mary Shelley in the in the, the thank yous. Grand, you the know? special thanks to Mary Shelley. Like, at the very least. But like here, nothing yeah, for H.G. Um, Wells. But what they've yeah, gone it, back is like, what would be scary mm. about there being an invisible man? Yeah, and this uh, is, it's directed by Lee Winnell, who, uh, who is a horror... I suppose like a mini horror legend at this point. Yeah, um, he started off as a screenwriter and actor. He wrote and co-starred in the movie Saw. Mm. Uh, he wrote the Insidious movies. Uh, he, uh, which are pretty good. Yeah, they're they're fine. I, I'm not the biggest fan of the first one. I think the second one is actually kind of a yeah, fun, dude. grand guignol. Kind of crazy spook story. That's the one with the the gas mask, and they actually go into the ghost dimension. Or well, they the technically do that in the first one as well, but they oh, do it yeah. in the second one too. Uh, no, the second the second one is the one where Patrick Wilson is actually possessed the whole time. Oh, right, yes, and becomes yes, a bit yes. more like The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very good film. I like it a lot. Uh, Lee Winnell ended up making his directorial debut on the third Insidious movie, Insidious Chapter Three, which was technically a prequel, so it should have been called Insidious Prologue. <laughs> I stand by this. <laughs> This pisses me off. The next one, the next one will be called Insidious Acknowledgements. Yeah, well, that one was called Insidious: The Last Key, which is fine. I well, guess. I, I guess that that is a literary term, a key, like a key, like a glossary of like terms. A legend, yeah, yeah. yeah it could have worked. Uh, anyway, the Insidious, the chapter three is just kind of fine. 
It, like, it's, it's, not, it's not the, remarkable. It's just sort of okay. It, it functions best as a story, but it's actually the least interesting of the movies because it doesn't have all of the weird, crazy crap that you go to see those movies for. Yeah, it's not the most frightening of it, but the character work is strong. Mm-hmm. The actual story of a young girl who tries to contact the spirit world to speak to her dead mother ends up coming to contact with the wrong spirit and bringing malevolence into her family. It's all fine, but it's he clearly wasn't like a great director yet. Mm-hmm. And then he made a movie called Upgrade, which kicks so much ass. <laughs> I have not seen Upgrade, oh, but so it, up in, in the wake of uh, The Invisible Man, a lot of people have been like f- posting clips on like YouTube and stuff. Like, here's a clip from Upgrade. It's like, this thing looks freaking fantastic. It really <laughs> is. And it's another one where it was a very low budget sci-fi action movie, but it feels like of a piece with RoboCop and Total Recall. Very mm-hmm. R-rated, very clever, very violent, very satirical. And Logan Marshall Green... Plays a guy who, uh, he's in a car accident, and someone gets out of the car accident and kills his wife. And now he is, he's a quadriplegic, he's, he can't move from the neck down. And he's invited by this billionaire scientist uh, to try a new technology that would rewrite the, his nervous system. And it would put a chip in his spine. And he's very surprised, first off, that he can walk. Mm-hmm. And then he's especially surprised that the chip is now talking to him. <laughs> and it says and it's inviting like it's offering to help him like get revenge for the death of his wife. And it's all about like him basically just like him and this computer in his brain rewriting the way his body works so that he can mm. fight an army of cyborgs. <laughs> it's cool. It's low budget, but you it doesn't need to be bigger budget. Mm. It's all just very clever and neat. And that right there. I feel like Insidious was like sort of a practice run, just sort of like, I've written this, can I do this? Uh-huh. Upgrade is him like pushing himself and pushing what he can do as a filmmaker visually, creatively, finding his own unique sense of tone, trying mm-hmm. not to just be, you know, James Wan, who had done the first two Insidiouses. And so now he's doing The Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. Now, The Invisible Man, original story by H.G. Wells, was originally adapted into a film in the 1930s by the great James Whale, who also did Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. The visual effects in the original Invisible Man still hold up. They're pretty amazing. There's a... If you watch the the DVD, they show you how they do some of these effects, mm-hmm. and it's unbelievably complicated how yeah. they achieve some of these things, like just footprints appearing in the snow, for mm-hmm. instance. Well, and also uh, they like did photographic effects to mm-hmm. like... Again, yeah, this is before computers. Like, they put like... Claude Rains, whoever his stand-in was, mm. in like a velvet suit, so that the velvet part wouldn't develop, and like it's so crazy, mm. but it looks really good. Yeah, Claude Rains played the Invisible Man, and the whole idea is that being invisible, sort of being unseen, uh, there's partly like a, a chemical explanation, like the chemicals that were used to make him invisible were sort of messing with his brain chemistry and making him a little nutty. Mm-hmm. But also there's this philosoph- philosophical thing that if there's no oversight, if you cannot be seen literally, mm-hmm. there's no oversight to your sins, essentially. There's no shame. And, there's yeah, nothing preventing you from doing from anything doing, malevolent. Doing horrendous things. And that is a, a temptation to do these horrible things. And I actually really like that. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, the Invisible Man actually for me is the least sympathetic of the universal monsters mm-hmm. because he's just a scientist who made himself invisible and decided to go screw it. I can, I can get away with everything. I'm now. going to be yeah. an agent of horror and chaos. And there's something really deeply cynical about the human condition in the invisible man that like, just mm-hmm. because you're invisible, just because you have a superpower, you would become evil because there's 
nothing stopping you, which is very James Whale. He's very yeah, much about man. pushing the boundaries of uh, morality and and sort of mm. contemporary codes of conduct. Uh, John Hodgman did an episode of This American Life once where his he did a certain like just this very anecdotal survey with people he met sort of randomly. Uh, what would you prefer? Would you prefer to be able to fly, a la Superman, mm-hmm. or would you prefer to become invisible? And the the conversations are really revealing about that very facet of the human condition, yeah. how flight is this very visible thing. That is the stuff of uh, an extrovert, yeah. of somebody who wants to be seen. Superman, as, he wears yeah. bright blue and red yeah, and exactly. goes, Wee! And, uh, and of course, when... Then, of course, the questions start coming up. Well, like, how much could I carry? Can I lift a whole car? Well, can you lift a car now? No. Then you can't lift a car. You know, you yeah. can lift another person. That's it. Yeah. And uh, even then, only if you can carry them. And and they, and then, of course, the question is, well, if you could turn invisible, we, uh, how would you turn that to your advantage? How would you become a hero? Well, Do your clothes you, you, turn invisible? That's something I think oh, is well, really exactly. important. Do you have to be naked? And, of course, he has to say whatever you like. Your clothes yeah. can turn invisible. You can touch something, and that's also invisible. But when you are invisible, what do you do? Like you, you watch. You like you sneak into locker rooms. Yeah, you you skulk. Really, yeah, yeah. yeah there's not much. That's the only thing it's good for. The, yeah, the only thing it's good for is actually breaking rules. Yeah. So uh, the ultimate conclusion he came to is flight is. It's not about introverts or extroverts. It's about heroism versus villainy. Mm-hmm. And initially, a lot of people say, "I would love to fly." And as the more he talked to them, the more they admitted, "No, I think I'd rather be invisible." Yeah. And they realize that we have a capacity toward villainy. Now, the Invisible Man in Lee Whannell's Invisible Man is unabashedly a villain, but not in a supervillain sort of way. He is a very recognizable villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he's a little too recognizable for me. <laughs> a lot of people are, yeah, are finding uh, this movie like hidden really close no, to home because in The Invisible Man... Uh, Lee Winnell decided, well, first off, he said he made two really important decisions. Mm. Uh, James Whale's Invisible Man tells a significant part of the story from the Invisible Man's point of view. Mm. You get to hear his thoughts. You get to know what he's up to. Um, that sort of falls by the wayside in like the last act or so when he just mm. starts, you know, derailing trains and things. But for the most part, it's wouldn't it be twisted vacation to mm. be invisible and be able to do whatever you want. Uh, and, but and, in Lee and, that's, Winnell's, and that's part of the appeal of the Invisible Man. True, and I think it's what Hollow Man was about, the Paul mm. Verhoeven Invisible Man movie where yeah, like, Kevin Bacon just immediately turns into a real scoundrel, like a real well, he, horrible... He was human. already kind of a scoundrel, and then, yeah, yeah he just sort of yeah. uses his invisibility, which... Again, it's one of those things where he's he becomes inv- he stays invisible for so long that he starts going a little stir crazy. Yeah. Also, they lock him up in a lab and he has to break out. <laughs> yeah. And, you know. It's not a bad movie. It's a very twisted film, though. Um, mm. But what Lee Winnell has decided to do, and he wrote the screenplay as well, was he's going to tell the story from the perspective of the Invisible Man's victim. Mm. And if you're going to tell the story from the victim, you really should focus on one victim. And mm. if we're only focusing on one victim, what's the story? Well, here's a woman played by Elizabeth Moss who was in an abusive relationship with a mad scientist named Griffin. And he was incredibly possessive. Uh, really dis- manipulative. Mm-hmm. Uh, physically, psychologically yeah, abusive. Emotionally abusive. We learn a little bit later that he was also physically abusive. Uh-huh. And she was not in a position to get out. She could yeah. not break up with him until the point where, and we see in the opening scene of the movie, that they live in this gigantic square, completely cold mansion out in the yeah. middle of nowhere, and there's this huge lawn that leads out to the sea. Yeah. She is completely isolated. It's like a prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, the opening sequence is, and everything is communicated in this sequence. It's brilliant. How uh, Elizabeth Moss, Moss wakes up, like, p- 
pokes her sleeping boyfriend and proceeds to very quietly mm-hmm. dress and escape and try to get out. Yeah. And her performance affects the rest of the movie. In that one scene, affects yeah. the rest of the movie. Sets the entire stage. Uh, because now we realize she's on edge, she's trying to get away, and she can't. Mm-hmm. And she has finally, this is like her final last ditch attempt to break up with this guy. Yeah. And so uh, we cut mm-hmm. to a few weeks later. She's living with uh, a friend of a friend, a friend of her sister's. His name is mm-hmm. Aldous Hodge. His daughter is played by Storm Reed. Is it, is it Aldous Hodge? Is Aldous it? Hodge. Okay, so I want to make sure I got his name right. Um, and she and, and is... Storm, been af- Storm Reed from Wrinkle in Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. these are great actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been afraid to leave the house because her ex-boyfriend is abusive and controlling and extremely wealthy. And he, she knows he'll never let her go. Mm-hmm. And she's very surprised when she's telling her sister who comes to visit, like, no, he knows about you. He would follow you here. He'll have, like, a private detective on you or something. You can't come here. It's not safe. Mm. The only the only way I'm ever going to be free of this guy is when he's dead. And then his sister says, well, he died. She's like, what? <laughs> and it turns out he died. And on as a bit of a twist, he left her everything. Mm. A huge trust that's going to start whipping out, like, here's $100,000 a month for the rest of your life. Holy shit. But... Don't you wish every breakup worked that way? Know, like right? you got a stipend for time spent. <laughs> yeah, for, for the misery that mm. was incurred. Uh, but she feels like there's something wrong. She still feels like he's watching her. He still feels like he'll always be a presence in her and, life. And yeah. that is an element of post-traumatic stress. Yeah. That yeah, well, people and, know and feel whether or not invisibility is a thing. And, and indeed, this is a very common psychological phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, with people who have escaped those sorts of traumatic relationships that the people and and indeed you escape a bad relationship people get stalked by their exes all the oh, time all the time and uh i mean so it's horrifying it, it's re- and it's really horrifying and it's it's realized very realistically in the invisible man and i think yeah. that's where it gets most of its strength not the invisibility stuff mm-hmm. In fact, uh, I think the I best feel, horror like stories they, are about yeah. something really genuine that we can yeah. all recognize or that we're all afraid of, yeah. and then they just add a horror element to it, yeah. and that's and what gives this movie its power. And uh, there's this wonderful feeling for about the first third, because you know there's going to be an Invisible Man in this thing if you've seen any of the ads. They, it's they in the of, title. Yeah. If you if you saw the title screen, you know it's and an Invisible Man. Also, it's been established that uh, that this evil boyfriend has made his fortune in quote optics. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but it means he can make invisibility things. Yeah. So, so, okay, we know there's an invisible man, but that means for the first third, we're looking around the edges of every frame, uh-huh. looking for some kind of weird discrepancy. And really, really but, g- geniusly, they uh, leave a lot of room on those frames, or they always, like... Yeah, like there's, like, a two-shot, but they remove, what like, who would be in the second part yeah, of that two-shot. Or, like, you yeah. see two people talking in a kitchen, and then for no conceivable reason, mm. the camera pans a little to the left, and there's nothing there. And there's nothing there. <laughs> it's so unnerving, because we know... The mm. visual, like, vocabulary of film. Mm. We know that if we tilt somewhere, there's something to put we're supposed to see. Yeah. There isn't. <laughs> I interviewed Lee Winnell about this, and he said almost every time the mm. camera does that, the invisible man is there. Mm. Almost. <laughs> Which I thought was clever. <laughs> it's a couple of times it's just a fake out. But yeah, as the film progresses, we do get to see that there's something really kind of amiss. Uh, she understands that he's definitely still there and mm-hmm. nobody believes her because he, the he invisible, died. he died. And also 
she's behaving as somebody suffering from post-traumatic stress. No, he's still there. He's yeah. still a presence in my brain. I can't get rid of him. Yeah. She's an agoraphobe now. She can't go out. And now she's just sort of afraid that he's sneaking in. Turns out he really is. This is Hitchcockian crap. Yeah. It's wonderful. Uh, and it stressed me the hell out because... Oh, it's a nail biter. Because I've had a relationship I had to run away from once. So I can kind of relate a little too closely to this movie. Yeah, I know a lot of um, people who've like had a similar just like... I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I've had bad relationships, but nothing this bad mm. where I felt like afraid like this... I've had, you know, I've been on the tail end of some really mm. terrible relationships, but yeah, this is gonna, some people have, it hit some people too close to home. I yeah. Think. Well, and yeah. I, I got to see this and Lee, uh, Lee Winnell was in earshot when we saw it. So like yeah. he was in the theater with us. So I actually got to tell him like, you made something that from my life, how, how dare you? What a great movie. And it's uh, <laughs> like, oh, well, thank you. He, he was very polite. He's very deferential. Um, when they finally get to the stupid invisibility stuff, and I use stupid as a descriptor, not not as, uh, not invisibility, as a is, invisibility is fundamentally stupid. It yeah, doesn't exist. It's, it's like this. The once they get into sort of the fantasy stuff, I'm already so deeply on board that I don't care. Yeah, and uh, and I'm actually sort of on board when it starts going full bore thriller, and there's actually like violence and, mm-hmm. and machinations. Well, they do a lot of smart stuff. Yeah. Like they never like when they start introducing like the mechanics of how invisibility works, mm-hmm. they never go further than we need to go. Yeah, they, they only they just, just go. Oh, here's, this is how it works. Here's That's all basically how it works. Okay, cool. Do uh, I need to know any more than that? No. Yeah, if there, there, we don't need to know. We don't need to hear about terminology. We don't need to hear about mythos. We don't need to hear about mm-hmm. what secret government project this is for. It's just he made that thing. Mm-hmm. What does that thing do? Makes you invisible. Why would ah. he be invisible? Because he's a manipulative asshole, and he yeah. would think to do that. That's all we need. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Like the ability, the ability to be invisible, to turn it on and off, would uh-huh. be useful. For unscrupulous people. <laughs> it would be useful for the CIA or something, mm-hmm. you know? Like, there's, there would definitely be a market for this. It'd be, like, a limited market. You couldn't put this on, you know, you couldn't put this at Best Buy. <laughs> I mean, that would be irresponsible at best. But, like, it just, can you imagine everyone just walking around in visibility suits? No, you wouldn't see anybody. Well, <laughs> the streets would, would look empty. The streets would, the, the, the sales of infrared goggles would spike. That's for sure. That's what would happen. And there'd be a lot of security on like bathrooms and locker rooms mm-hmm. and stuff. Everyone would go around just like with misters, like, you know, for punishing your cats, but just be like, pss, 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 somebody, pss, somebody nearby. Okay. Yeah. Pss, pss, Roger. <laughs> pss, pss, bad. Mm. Bad Roger. <laughs> um, but yeah, this movie's really stellar and I mm. love, I love its simplicity. Mm-hmm. I love that it mines its simplicity for all that it's work. It's not like it's not simple in that not enough happens or that it feels spare or empty. It's simple in that it understands how to make this story scary. It understands mm-hmm. how to ground it in the real world. It also understands how to make invisibility scary. There's one scene in the invisible in the invisible man. I remember uh, it, it reminded me of a scene from Insidious that didn't really work for me, but I know it worked for a lot of people. Where was this uh, where Darth Maul appeared behind Patrick Wilson? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. There's this. There's just this scene. And it's a. It's a well done bit, but I just mm. thought James Wan overplayed it a smidge. Um, a smidge. Yeah, Insidious is one of the loudest movies I've ever seen yeah, in a theater. We, we got to talk to Lee Winnell actually once. We interviewed him. And, oh, for and, our podcast, yeah. for, our, for the B Movies podcast, and he he actually did point out the irony that these loud theatrical kind of wacky films are called Insidious, which actually means kind of sneaky and undetectable. Yeah. Hilarious. But yeah, Insidious, like when the the credit for Insidious, the title comes Mm -hmm. up on screen, the loudest musical cue 
ever. And it's, it's a like, scary piece of music. It like makes you jump. 74 violins playing in unison. But there's no subtlety to it. And, and there's this bit, and it's a very nice bit of visual storytelling where it's just a shot, shot reverse, reverse shot. shot yeah. A shot reverse shot, and you've seen this in almost every movie you've ever seen, is just there's a close-up of this actor looking to their left, and then you cut to a close-up of this actor looking to their right, and they're having a conversation, and you cut between them. Mm-hmm. That's called a shot reverse shot. You have a shot of Patrick Wilson, and you have a shot of, I think it was Barbara Hershey, and you have a shot of Patrick Wilson, and mm-hmm. you have a shot of Pat- Barbara Hershey, and then you're getting used to this visual rhythm, and then all of a sudden, there's a shot of Patrick Wilson, and there's a horrifying demon sitting behind him. Same frame, mm-hmm. but that demon wasn't there before, and of course, they like jam on the keyboard and all the string instruments. The monster looks really scary. It's got big teeth. Yeah. They do that, and if, there's a scene in Invisible Man where they do that, but instead of seeing a giant monster, you just see a knife floating in the air, <laughs> and they don't do the sting or if they do it's real it's way more subtle yeah that scared the shit out of me just the idea of a knife floating around it would be goofy Mm. like in almost anything yeah yeah but in this movie they understand like that would be the scariest fucking thing in the world if Mm. you didn't know invisibility was a thing (laughs) that would be the scariest thing you have ever seen also probably the last thing you'd ever see (laughs) and it's really 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 frightening what Mm. a frightening motion picture it's really good. Yeah. It's really good. Is uh, it as good? Let me ask you a question. Do you mm-hmm. think it's as good, better than, or still not up to the same level as the original Invisible Man? Well, the, inv- the original Invisible Man is such a different animal. This is like a, a subtle psychological drama. The first mm-hmm. Invisible Man is is a, an opera, you know, in the 1930s vein, yeah. where everything's like really over overwrought and overdramatic. I mean, you know, Connor is yeah. in it, and she's giving one of her great. Yeah, and she's sort of thrashing about and screaming, yeah. "Oh no, an Invisible Man!" You know, she's she's wonderful, <laughs> I but. Love uh, her. But yeah, and it, it is more about sort of the spectacle. It's a spectacle thriller, the yeah. original one. This one is so much less about the actual spectacle. It's about a lack of spectacle. It's about well, yeah, it's uh, invisibility. Uh, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, but it's invisible. actually more insidious than insidious. Curious, curious that weird. My one of my favorite shots in the original Invisible Man is a pair of pants just sort of skipping down the road, <laughs> and Claude Rains is singing, "Here we go, gathering nuts and bay, nuts and bay." It's, it's just kooky, weird, completely off the wall kind of movie. I appreciate that they're very different beasts about mm. similar topics. But what I was thinking of, because I was thinking of there been Universal has tried to revisit and or reboot their horror properties for a long time, over and over and over yeah, again. They, they did it with uh, Frank Langella in the 1970s. That movie's mm. great. I don't know if I'd say it's better than the original Dracula, but I love Frank Langella pieces mm. in it. The Mummy has a lot of fans. Personally, I prefer the original, but the uh, new Mummy was the really Stephen fun. Stephen Summers Mummy. Don't yeah. forget uh, Coppola's Dracula. And that wasn't Universal, though. That was just an adaptation of Dracula. Oh, okay. I thought that I, was also Universal. I'll double check, but I thought maybe. that was like Warner Brothers or oh, something. Maybe, I'll, I'll double check. Maybe you're right. Yeah, I'm, um, I can have that wrong. But yeah. Um, but uh, And then, of course, we had... Um, uh, Van Helsing, which ben was Helsing. you know a larf. Mm-hmm. I I enjoy it as like you know just a silly monster mashup movie for for basically kids. Yeah, um, I have a lot of fun with it. But yeah, it's not a great movie. Um, the Wolfman is fine. The makeup effects are really good. It's a watchable movie. It doesn't it's, really. It's it's just watchable. It's yeah. actually not that exciting a story. Just it's a, an effects piece. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. Yeah. I think it gets a bit of a raw deal, but it's not particularly good. Mm. Um, let's see. Dracula Untold should have stayed that way. <sighs> Dracula, Dracula Untold good. is quite bad. It's um, really quite bad. And then the mummy. Well, Dracula Untold was an attempt yeah. to start with the Universal monsters. What Marvel was already doing at that point with the big Avengers movies. I think yeah. Avengers was new, like the first Avengers team up movie. Yeah. 
was brand new at the time when they were making Dracula Untold. Yeah, it was definitely something that they were trying so to they, they start So they were really motion. trying to yeah, put it start yeah. this big sort of interconnected monster universe. They said, well, Dracula Untold. No one cared. Uh, no one cared, but they I think they were going to sort of grandfather it in anyway, the mm. same way they did with like the Incredible Hulk. It's like, um, yes and no. We don't need uh, to go back to We can just bring Dracula in and have this be his vague and, and, backstory. And, and they do like same cast members yeah. too. It was Luke Evans as, and then, as Dracula. And then they did the new mummy with Tom Cruise, which, which there was, are bits of it I like. It's not like a complete wash as a movie, but and, and the Tom com- Cruise is wildly miscast. Tom, yeah, Tom. They needed a somebody like younger and a little bit more of an asshole. Yeah, they need like like Tom Hardy or someone someone like that. Well, someone I was going to say Chris Pine or would have been yeah, better. Maybe in that role, you need yeah. someone who you believe could be corrupted, and yeah. Tom Cruise refuses to play it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just thinking, like, I feel like this is to my mind. Mm. And uh, by the way, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula came out for, uh, was Columbia Pictures. Columbia. So I'm, I'm also looking up uh, Brana's Frankenstein. Yeah, I don't I'm, think that was that. I'm the um, only person who likes that movie. But um, I, I love Robert De Niro in that movie. Mm-hmm. I think he gives a truly resplendent performance in that movie. Oh. Um, I don't think the movie works. Well, what what I love is that you know all of this all of the scenes with the monster with De Niro. Yeah are really quiet and underplayed. They're yeah. really kind of these soulful moments where he's kind of looking in himself and the camera doesn't move and he's just sort of having these... There's no music in those scenes. He kind of has, like, little conversations here and there with people. Whereas all the scenes with Frankenstein, with Kenneth Branagh playing Frankenstein, the camera's swirling around. Oh, yeah. There's all this opera... Like, in his mind, he's, like, this big, gigantic artist. I think it's a good counterpoint. I think, I think it was done intentionally. There's good ideas. I just don't think it comes together very well. Okay, and... Um, uh, and yeah. That one was put out by... You can do uh, it. Tristar. It Tristar. Tristar, okay. Tristar. So none of those are universal. So I think this is the best universal horror reboot. Yeah, for but sure. I, I was just trying to ask myself, because I know they're different, but is it the one that's better than the original? <laughs> Have they finally surpassed it? I don't know, honestly. I, I think well, they're on par. Yeah. Uh, and... A lot of people like to point that to Claude Rains. You can't see him, but he gives a great performance, He's especially wonderful. a good vocal performance in the original one. Um, Elizabeth Moss is a great actress, and mm-hmm. she is able to carry this thing on her shoulders. Uh, mm-hmm. This wouldn't work without her sense of panic mm-hmm. and her agoraphobia if it didn't feel real. There's a way to overplay this and make that character character seem like crazy and hysterical. Yeah. Or a way to underplay it like, oh no, she's like kind of cool and maybe she like she's in charge of the situation. No, she's got it just uh, the right tone all through. Yeah, she she's a human being and she's able to capture every last bit of it. She has cute little foibles that have nothing to do with the invisible man. Uh-huh. Like when she gives gifts to her family. Oh, like, I know like, it's really like, funny, some really sweet scenes early on. Uh She's the heart and soul of this, and I'm glad that they cast somebody like her to to play this, and yeah. she was directed just right. You actually brought up an interesting mm-hmm. point, um, which is, you know, the original Invisible Man, we hear Claude Rains. It's a vocal performance as much, if not more, than anything. Mm-hmm. That's what we remember about the Invisible Man. We remember the bandages around the face, which is mm-hmm. ironic because he's supposed to be invisible, and we remember Claude Rains' voice. Mm-hmm. The Invisible Man barely says a word. Mm. In this, and I think that is so much creepier than just having this invisible guy monologuing. Mm. It's so just creepy that he's just he's content to just stay there staring at you. Well, and being it's, weird. It's called the Invisible Man, and I think yeah. that's significant. Uh, the original Invisible Man. It's about the man. It's about the mm. Invisible Man. He's the title character. The Invisible Man is not uh, is not the protagonist of Lee Winnell's The Invisible Man. Mm. It's about the man in your life. It's about mm. th- the man who oppresses you. Mm. It, it's very much an anti-patriarchy film, isn't it? Oh, about how uh, men tend to uh, abuse and manipulate 
Uh, and this is like not that women don't do this as well, but uh, this mm-hmm. I think that's implicit in the title. There's an institutional in tendency and yeah, a, and yeah, a yeah, sad, too. repeated storyline yeah, that we've seen play out in real life. Especially when the man is in this position of power, the way the Invisible Man is in this movie. He is he lives in a mansion. He has a lot of money, and poor Elizabeth Moss is his prisoner essentially, yeah. and people treat her as if she's done something kind of foolish by leaving this guy. Yeah. When, even though clearly she's doing it for her own well-being. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she goes on, she has a lot of speeches about how he's doing all of these extra things to make sure she doesn't talk to a lot of her friends. Yeah, to distance her uh, from yeah. her support system. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So um, I think that uh, is is mostly what this film is about, and that's what really kind of pushes it above just sort of your average thriller. I think we've had, mm. like, at least... Two and and we disagree on one of them, but mm. at least two rock solid. Holy shit, are these amazing movies come out? Even of the studio system mm. within two months, and that's a pretty good start to a year. <laughs> yeah, because between I know you didn't love Birds of Prey the way I did. Mm. I loved it to pieces. Mm. I love Invisible Man to pieces. Mm. Oh, I hope this is a pattern. I hope this is going to be one of those years. Well, well we already where it's full yeah, of great stuff. We, we already had Emma, so uh, that's right. I haven't seen Emma though, yeah, so you're right. Okay. But there you go. That's another one that's uh, that's really blowing people away. Um, another film, and this one's actually flew right under a lot of radars. I don't see a lot of people talking about it, mm-hmm. but it's a damn shame because I think they should. Uh, that opened last weekend is a film called Saint Francis. Mm-hmm. Saint Francis is a wonderful. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, I, I it's almost framed like a coming of age story, but it's about a woman in her mid thirties. Um, and um, okay, so it's about a, it's about a woman, and she's thirty four, and she's feeling like she hasn't really got a start on her life. And it's it's um it's a very millennial film. Yes, uh, in that the plight of the millennials is uh, they're going through the same kind of quarter life crisis a decade later than the the generation before them. Uh, you go back 10 or 15 years, there was a, a very short-lived TV program called Quarter Life. Mm. It was about the quarter life crisis. And yeah. how uh, I'm 25, but I'm still living with roommates, and I don't really have my job yet, and I'm kind of stuck in a rut. Yeah. Uh, the lead character in this movie is going through the exact same thing, but she's 34. Yeah. And she's still living with roommates and still couch surfing and not looking for, you know, still looking for some kind of regular gig. Does she have roommates? Uh, or she doesn't have roommates, but her, her boyfriend does. Yeah, she's dating a guy who's in like his mid-20s mm. and his roommate is still like loudly playing video games mm. while they're trying to have dinner. They're, they're and... having a romantic dinner. He's saying, no, no, back off, back off. Let's go into the other room. It's a very funny scene. Yeah. Um, and so she she's mm. feeling a bit directionless and she has decided to quit her job uh, being a, a server at a restaurant. Mm. And go into being a nanny, which he's never done before and isn't even really qualified for. And uh, very, very point, uh, pointedly, doesn't like kids. Yeah, she has no particular mm. affection or affinity for children. But it's a better job. Mm. So she's going to take it. And she ends up getting hired uh, by two women uh, who have, what's she, about six? Uh, one six-year-old. One six-year-old named Fran- Francis. Francis. Franny is six, and then they, there's also a, a brand new infant. So yes. a couple months old. So they need a nanny because one of the one of them works and the other one's just overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. They need a nanny to just look after Francis while they focus on the infant for a little while. Uh, and, and Francis is a brat. She's <laughs> Not a, to put too fine a point on it. She's a precocious brat. And yeah. this is the thing that's really interesting about Francis. And the reason why I think her character plays so much differently than so many other little kid characters who are either supposed to be precocious or are supposed to be a brat or both. Mm. She's not malevolent. Mm. 
But she's she's a little spiteful. She's mischievous. She, she's definitely calculating. She's calculating, but she's not calculating like beyond her years. Yeah, and this is a hard thing. It's hard to write mm. children, and you can see that from all the movies with children in them who are badly written, where mm. it seems like they're adults who are small. Yeah, or too or 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 not smart enough. They're not given that not much dignity. Frances is a character who is clearly regurgitating a lot of what her parents have told her. Mm. But she's starting to understand some of it. She understands the context for some of it. But she's also a selfish kid. She's been kind of the only child for long enough mm. that she's used to having a lot of attention. And she's used to kind of having her own way. And so now she has a nanny. And not like, you know, some old lady who she's used to, like, you know, kicking around or waiting until she takes a nap and doing whatever she wants. But someone who is young and who is opinionated and who isn't really willing to put up with Francis's crap. Mm. Um, and they both have a lot of learning to do. I really love the way um, the, uh, Bridget, the protagonist, played by Kelly O'Sullivan, who also wrote the screenplay, um, she makes a lot of textbook first-time mistakes. Like, I took her, I only took my eyes off her for one minute and she fell in the river? <laughs> She's like, you can't do that! The job is you have to see her every second. Mm. You don't get to learn on the job this time. You gotta actually just be responsible over and over and over and over again. Mm. And she has to, I mean, it sounds like... It doesn't sound like there's a lot of drama to it, but it's so captivating because of how realistically and how innocently and how sweetly it comes across. But what I think is the most remarkable about this is how it is giving a voice to all of these different characters from all of their different facets of their lives. You know, women who are uh, retired, middle-aged, younger, mm. little kids, and how when you put them in an environment where they're not like surrounded by anyone else, men, strangers, anyone mm. they have to justify themselves to, they still behave like they can't talk to each other. And the whole movie is about how people start gradually getting close enough that they can tell each other things that mm. they're ashamed of or not proud of or don't think that they can. Yeah. And it all boils down to, at the beginning of the film, Kelly Sullivan's character has an abortion and she's never mm. really talked to anyone about it. Yeah. Well, that, that's you, you kind of skimmed over the fact that's actually how the film opens is yeah. she, she has a one night stand. She becomes pregnant. She gets an abortion uh, with with the blessing of the father. Uh, yeah, it's it's not like she's uh, you know, she's being very responsible. Yeah, she's, she's very they're all very responsible about it and they're all very open about mm -hmm. it. And uh, it, it seems probably easier than it is in real life. But, yeah, mm -hmm. she actually go, gets an abortion and she's constantly bleeding throughout the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. And. This is uh, very much a film that is analyzing not just parenting, but sort of the way a transactional type of parenting goes when you are raising children. That is, when you hire a sitter, or when mm -hmm. you hire a nanny, yeah. uh, uh, when you essentially have an ersatz parent in the picture. Mm. This little girl already has two moms, but really she has three. And... I think trying to develop unique relationships with all of her moms is something that seems to be having an effect on her. And it also is putting the, the two moms already in, in the picture in a new perspective where they all have to each develop their own unique relationship 
with Francis mm. and how Francis, although she's the one who requires the care is the one who seems to, hence the title St. Francis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's ES by the way, not IS like St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, she is the one who is essentially giving them their blessing. And in fact, that becomes very obvious late in the film when there's a scene in a confessional, for God's yeah. sake. Uh, it doesn't play trite. It actually is very good. No, it's, yeah. it's incredibly well earned. In yeah. fact, uh, as a parent, I recognize everything that's going on here. And yeah. I'm so also, glad you watch this because I don't have that perspective and I know yeah, how okay. valuable it could be here. And also we get to see how being a parent is really hard and it is actually draining uh, Maya. Uh, let me look up the actress's name. Uh, Sharon um, Alvarez. Sharon Alvarez. Uh, she's she's the she just gave birth to the little infant. And there are many shots of her just sort of like staring into the middle distance well, as, you know, white noise plays in her head and she just is not acknowledging the world around her because she's exhausted and in complete despair. There's this great scene where Kelly mm. O'Sullivan, uh, like, comes in to work mm. and Maya's just standing there at the kitchen table and the baby is crying mm. and Maya's just like, I can't look at her right now. <laughs> I can't. You have to take care of the baby right yeah. now. I can't do this. Mm. And... It's not her being irresponsible. It's her admitting and that she needs the help. She needs the help. And I think, you know, parenting is is a very dicey thing because mm. there, there are highs and there are lows. And there have been a few, you can find some essays online to this effect, about the one uns- unspoken thing that we're not supposed to discuss, and that's resenting your child. Yeah. That is resenting the fact that they've changed your entire life and that you're exhausted constantly and that you have to rethink your entire world to accommodate this person that you have made uh, or adopted. And uh, I think this uh, is a film that deals with a, that resentment B the way a lot of young people who are, uh, you know, hate kids or don't want kids uh, kind of come around to the fact that parents are actually doing something very noble and that kids are people. And, and I think that's a very important lesson that's that's sort of embedded in this film as well, that Frances herself is a complete human being, even though she's only six years old, that she has a lot of likes and dislikes and interests and personalities and how uh, hating kids is actually sort of like hating any group, essentially. <laughs> you, you need to, you know, she's getting to know an individual and understanding that parenting is, is a noble endeavor. Children are human beings. Well, and also that she's and, capable of it. And yeah, and that, yeah. that she actually, and this is not sort of like uh, shoring up any kind of cliches about, you know, the mothering instinct or anything like that. It's yeah. actually much more natural about that. I it always hate that in movies sort of, where like, there's always, like there's that movie, I don't know how she does it, mm-hmm. with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, and there's like a character who, who, Becomes pregnant and she's just like, but I'm a working woman. I don't think I'm going to be good at this. And everyone's just like, as soon as you see your baby, yeah. it'll all come together. And that's, and that's, that's true. That's what and happened, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's exactly what happened. And I'm just like, I'm not saying that that never happens, hmm. but to tell people that always happens is an unrealistic yeah, standard. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And and it is condescending to say, oh, you know, you fall in love with your baby the first time you see it to people who don't have children yet. Yeah. First of all, that's true. But uh, of, course, of course, there's an element it's, of truth. It's, it's, to it's that, a cliche, but, but it's true. But that doesn't and, uh, mean you're instantly going to be a good no, responsible and, and, parent there's uh, tons of terrible parents out there in, indeed uh, I think this is dealing with every kind of relationship and every kind of nuance and I think it's also very important that uh, Francis uh, Francis's girl uh, our main character is, is a woman and that the, it's two moms instead of a mom and a dad yeah because now we just have the female perspective of parenting because imagine imagine if you had made like this even just the one um, change. It's the parents are a heterosexual couple. Yeah. 
then it completely changes so many dynamics. There's a different yeah, there's, there's a different kind of way that everyone would behave around the house exactly. because of of just typical mm. social convention. There would be this uh, fucking annoying like well, temptation this- to add like some sort of thing where like oh there's a hot young nanny in here and, be, like will they not want to put a subplot and it just re- reinforcing these weird sort of heteronormative fantasies. Yeah, yeah it's and it's like I'm not saying there isn't a place for that story, but this is a story we didn't have before mm. and it's great to have this story yeah 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 even sergio agrees and, and in fact it, all, all of sort of the relationships are sort of evenly spread because the uh, the other mom annie who's played by uh, lily mojekwu who's not in the movie a lot she's the working mom so yeah. she's just sort of out of the house a lot but every time uh, she comes but, back in you realize that she's been going through something that we mm. haven't seen yeah yeah and uh, and also she she's um uh, Francis' biological mother. Mm. She's the one who gave birth to Francis, and the other mom gave birth to their infant son, whose name I forgot. I forgot it's just, the son's just, name too. Just baby. It's a baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cute baby. That's uh, a cute baby, yeah. but like we don't. Yeah. I, I was indifferent to babies, and then I lived with a baby, and now every baby is the cutest baby in the I, world. I was the youngest uh, person in my family. I was never really around babies yeah. growing up. So, yeah. well, sh- should you have a baby someday? You'll understand if I'm I can sure I if I can do that condescending. Crap I mean, I had again. nieces and they were they were okay, they were perfectly pleasant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were babies. They were they were cool. Um, what a wonderfully emotionally intelligent movie. Yeah, it just it knows it knows humanity very well. It knows motherhood very well. And although I'm a man, I feel like it speaks very strongly to female concerns in a way we don't get from a lot of modern movies. Uh, would you mind getting the cat off the coffee table? I'll go please? get the cat off. The uh, well, I, well, I completely agree with your point. I think. I, I really do feel like this is one of those movies where everyone who watches this movie is going to get something out of it. I do feel like it's illuminating and freeing and a fresh perspective on a lot of issues that typically get glossed over in a lot of media. And I really love that. I think the performances are really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me a little bit of Francis Ha. In that it's a, that's but also a story being of being stuck in a rut. And it's also a bit, place, of a, yeah. a bit of a quarter life crisis as well. Mm-hmm. But Francis Ha, as much as I admire Francis Ha, it's not one of my favorite movies on the subject. And part of it is because I think uh, Noah Baumbach was a little in love with the art house black and white aesthetic. He really wanted to make it really sharp and crisp. And mm-hmm. there's something about that that makes the film feel a little snarky. To oh, yeah. me, he's just much, a little too much bit distance. a little too much distance, a little a little artifice to it, a little highlight uh, hi- the drabness of her life. I think that was the point. No, but, I think it makes her life look too cool. Oh, okay. like that's for me. I think it makes it look like a really cool like French New Wave film. And here we just we strip out all of that. I'm mean, not that it isn't stylish, not that it isn't well made, but we mm-hmm. strip out all of that distraction, mm-hmm. and all we are left with is people interacting and being real Mm -hmm. and that's really really remarkable when you can pull it off when you can make it feel real and funny and sad Mm -hmm. and romantic and it's a great motion picture i love this movie and and the final scene just made me like ugly cry great (laughs) great little scene Mm -hmm. yeah like the last like bunch of scenes like all of them are good like it all comes together and yeah just the the last conversation between francis and and the main character is just uh, uh, like clutching chest kind of sad this sad cathartic cry moment. I, I don't want to ruin it. There's a scene in a car where mm. uh, Kelly O'Sullivan's character mm. is on a phone that I just thought was a masterful bit of writing and acting. Yeah, yeah. it's just really nicely done. So listen, I it's a really really good movie. I highly recommend everyone check it out. Um, and uh, keep an eye out on Kelly O'Sullivan because apparently she's a really great writer and a really great actor, and that's a really good one-two punch. Mm. So 
Awesome. Uh, tell me about. Mm-hmm. Let's let's mix it up a little bit. Tell me about all the bright places. All the bright places. This is a yet another one of those films that is just sort of being unceremoniously uh, released on Netflix without yeah. any kind of uh, fanfare or advertising whatsoever. Drop it, it like it's hot. Blum. Drop it like it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> potato? What potato? Um, this is a teen romantic. A very moody tragedy with Elle Fanning and Justice Smith from Detective Pikachu. Uh, They're high school students, and they're both suffering. Uh, The Elle Fanning character has, we learn pretty early on, has recently lost her sister in a car accident that she was in. Her sister was driving, and... Like, she, she said all she remembered was glass hitting, and then her sister was just sort of gone when she woke up. Yeah. And so she has uh, fallen into a, a near-suicidal depression. She does things like hanging off of bridges and just doesn't want to talk to anybody. Justice Smith notices her, and in what would be an incredibly obnoxious uh, series of, of behavior quirks, if mm. it were played by an actor who was playing this slightly different than what Justice Smith did... Uh, he sort of takes an interest in her and almost makes her a little bit of a project mm. and says, well, we, we have, in fact, they literally have a school project together and they have to explore their small Indiana town where they're from and wander and find, you know, sort of catharsis out there in the world. He, meanwhile, is going to see his school guidance counselor and we learn that he's actually had a lot of trouble in school. He's had a lot of violent outbursts. He goes missing for weeks at a time. He just sort of goes on walkabouts on his own. Uh, the guidance counselor is played by Keegan-Michael Key. Okay. Uh, and so he's dealing with uh, problems of his own. And if you're sharp enough, you'll realize pretty early on that he's bipolar. It's not spoken aloud and it's undiagnosed, but that's what's going on in his life because he actually is incredibly creative and he goes through these really kind of chatty, open, friendly phases and then he'll just sort of withdraw and be silent and sometimes just absent for the longest time. Yeah. These two mutually wounded souls find each other and they very slowly begin what they don't even realize is a healing process. Um it starts playing out like a romance, of course. Mm-hmm. And they do fall in love, of course. Uh, but there's so much going on in these people's lives that a lot of factors get in their way. He, his uh, school record, she has overprotective parents. Understandably so, because they have already lost a child. Uh, her dad is played by Luke Wilson. Oh. Uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of sort of, oh, look, recognizable supporting figures yeah. in addition to the lead roles. Uh, it doesn't go down the schmaltzy path you're going to. It goes a little bit down more of a tragic path. And mm. it doesn't end well for these two. And I'm not, that's all I'm going to say because I want to leave the, the ending a surprise. It is, however, based on a pre- rather popular YA book from what I understand. Oh, okay. So if you've read the book, then you probably won't be shocking. You, yeah, you'll, you'll know what happens. Uh, I do like the way this explores in a very... Very emotionally... Very emotional, but in very kind of... In that adolescent YA sort of way pattern of uh, dealing with mental health. Mm. Uh, The Justice Smith character requires a lot of help, but because his problems have gone undiagnosed, his problems are only getting worse. Uh, Elle Fanning, meanwhile, she's, you know, going through this horrendous depression, and even though this guy is kind of forcing her out of her shell, which isn't always the best idea, it turns out to be just the sort of things she needs. She needs a connection again. She needs a relationship again. Mm-hmm. And that ends up to, ends up being very, very good for her. Um, it's... Cats. It, it ri- no editorializing. <laughs> All the Bright Places writes right on the line 
between being really emotionally honest and being really melodramatically insufferable. Well, it sounds... You can look to your left and right and see one or the other. It sounds to me, and this is uh. just my read on what you were saying, that one of the key things making it work is El Fanning and Justice Smith. Justice, they're, just, they're just really good. Justice Smith in particular. Oh, I think okay. I think Elle Fanning is playing the Elle Fanning role. Like, it, it, we, we've had enough of her films that we can kind of spot the kind of, kinds of roles she plays. You think... Uh, I'm, oh, absolutely. I think she's a really interesting actor. I think I've seen her make a lot of interesting choices. She's done a few oddball things. Like she was in that uh, uh, John Cameron Mitchell film, uh, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is oh, a, a very unusual. Well, she plays a space alien. It's a very unusual role. <laughs> okay. um, it's actually quite a, quite a good, strange little film that people don't talk a lot about a lot. Right. That that's the film that should have been getting all the attention that N in the Apocalypse was getting. Um, oh, poo. I don't like it. I'm it's a cute movie. Uh, it's it, it's cheapness undoes any energy it might have. I'll grant you it's uh, too cheap for its own yeah, good. The, the Hollywood ending song is good. Yeah. The other songs are kind of forgettable. Um, I, I like it in concept better than execution. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Um, I, I still like it more than you, but that's uh, fair. Yeah. How to Talk to Girls at Parties swings for the walls and actually makes it. And it has like Nicole Kidman as, in it as this like, oh. aging punk rock. Well, then it yeah. must be good. Well, my my point is, <laughs> watching Nicole Kidman ham it up is a, a selling point of this movie. Oh, no, she she kills it in Paddington. I love it when she's having fun. Yeah, and yeah. She, she has fun here, too. It's sort of like this yeah. aging Joan Jett type of character. Yeah. Which is, that's a terrific movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, here, yeah, here she's playing kind of off-the-rack depressive team number 38. And I think Justice Smith is the one who, like, if Ansel Elgort was in this role, mm. you'd want to slap that kid across the face. <laughs> Like, no, you much, are obnoxious. I love how much everyone hates Ansel Elgort. <laughs> he's, he's fine. Look at it. Uh, yeah, but he's got a slappable face. <laughs> Everyone's has, got a slappable face a if rest, you slap it. Re- restable slap face. <laughs> restable resting slap face. All right. Well, speaking of resting slap face, uh, Greed. The Eric von Stroheim film? I wish. No, this is a new film from Michael Winterbottom. Oh, I like Michael Winterbottom sometimes. I, I'm not Michael Winterbottom is an interesting director. He is very prolific, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen all that many of his movies. All things considered, like I've seen a oh, few. Yeah. All right. Um. So I don't really have like I don't really I I, I when like oh we're gonna go see a Michael Winterbottom film. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a strong opinion one way or another. Okay. I just I know he's he's got a deft touch. He doesn't have a particularly pronounced sense of like cinematic visual style he tends well, to sort of let the characters drive the action he, he's and it's very sort of Stephen Frears yeah, kind of so way I was gonna just say that's he he and Stephen Frears are, have, have a very workmanlike approach to the material they right. want the material to sort of play on itself I feel like Michael Winterbottom does have a style he's much more he tries to lend sort of his own naturalistic style there's a lot of handheld camera work in his yeah. movies there's a lot of grit in his movies uh, did you ever see his film uh, Butterfly Kiss? No. The 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 lesbian romance with a old Amanda Plummer, or I guess no. it's like a, a lesbian road crime movie from the mid nineties. Yeah, that one's that one. like that one's wonderfully crazy. I, I heard the Killer Inside Me was very stylish, but I didn't see that one. Uh, I like the Killer Inside Me, but I recognize that it's an incredibly bad movie. <laughs> like, it's, like it's really like really hor- it's horrendously problematic. It's like there's like two people who see that movie. Either it's horrendously problematic, or I liked it. Like, but I've never <laughs> seen it, so I can't say okay um but he's back and he is back working with steve coogan and they've worked together many times before they worked on uh films like the trip and the the other trip and 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 the the third trip and the third trips uh steve coogan is of course a very funny british actor he's a very chameleonic Mm. um and uh here he plays a billionaire named rich mcgreedy Oh, God. Yeah, this is where we're at right now, okay? Like, where you're at right there? 
That's that's what we're doing here. Mc- that's how subtle this movie's gonna be. McGreedy. Rich McGreedy. Like Scrooge McDuck, too subtle. Play it up. <laughs> what? Um, so he is a a, a British billionaire. Does, 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 does his doorbell go money? <laughs> it should. <laughs> uh, he's he's a he's a rich he's he's a, he's a billionaire and he uh, made his money um, in department stores. Okay. He like figured out how to get uh, uh, clothes extremely cheap. Mm-hmm. Basically, by screwing people over time and time and time again, and he is uh, basically manipulated financial systems over and over again to turn utter failure into him somehow making a billion dollars. He's 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 scum, basically. Yeah, but he's scum with a very strong personality. So you put a camera mm-hmm. on him. Theoretically, it's supposed to be interesting. Uh, he is approaching his sixtieth birthday, and for his sixtieth birthday, he's going to have a mother of a blowout. And the majority of the film is people. Right. Thank you, Google. Thank you for that. <laughs> you got, you got a, that's an me, update. not you. Google wants me to hmm. update my password on an email account I no longer have. Alexa, order Jingle All the Way DVD. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Bastard. Uh, anyway, it's it's uh, Rich McGreedy's 60th uh. birthday. It's going to be a mother of a blowout. And the majority of the film is we're following. We're seeing his backstory, but we're also following the various people putting together his party. Mm. And the, those people include uh, his young trophy wife, his ex-wife, played by Isla Fisher. Okay. Uh, his son, uh, played by Asa Butterfield, who okay. openly hates his guts. Mm. Um, his personal assistant, who it turns out her mom was actually working in one of his sweatshops. Uh, all right. Um and his biographer that, that was that was a dark laugh by the way. I oh yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. And uh and his biographer uh who is interviewing everybody mm. and uh keeps accidentally making some bad suggestions that they end up using. And also uh while they're here on this like the Greek Isles, uh there is a family of I think Syrian refugees that is just living on the beach and he is constantly trying to get them off the beach because they're ruining his view mm. until finally he he agrees in order to get them off the beach so that all of his celebrity friends won't have the view ruined. He basically tricks them in a card game into working for him in his elaborate Greco Roman themed party where everyone is dressing up and all of the servants are dressed as slaves. Nobody tells them how problematic this is. Uh. Nobody tells them how absolutely stupid, horrifying, obvious this is. Also, all of those celebrities who he didn't want the uh, the view ruined for, like none of them showed up and ended up having to hire celebrity mm. impersonators. Some of whom are cele- are impersonating celebrities who are dead. <laughs> so God. it's not even really going to help. Uh. Did, did you ever see that documentary film, You've Been Trumped, about Donald Trump? No, like, I like never back did. Back in 2012. I, I learned about this from Roger Ebert. He was one of the documentary reviewed, and uh, it was about how Donald Trump had bought this land in Ireland, and it was completely inhospitable to building a hotel, but that's what he's going to do, and he ended up like trying to oust like this little tiny local village because it, quote, ruined the view, uh-huh. even though it had been there for like centuries, and just... The, the whole film was just about what a dickhead Donald Trump is. And uh, it it turns out that this this is probably not a, a this is probably a comment on just rich people in general. Mm-hmm. Is it about 
Donald Trump? Or is no, it just about not billionaires? Sp- not specifically. Right. It's just about billionaires in right. general and um, about how they abuse their workers and about how they live in this completely alien mm. world that money is just completely divided them from anything resembling an actual human experience and how mm. that divorces them from the need for little things like mm. empathy. Um, it's all very obvious. It, there's a There's a good movie here somewhere. And I think it needs to be completely reworked at the script stage. You know, we've been watching like a lot of 1930s films for our uh, side podcast, Only the Best, yeah. for our Patreon subscribers, where we review every single Best Picture nominee um, ever. Mm-hmm. And in the 1930s, there was a definite approach Hollywood had towards filming the very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And it was typically very satirical. Okay. It's like we're we're sometimes it sometimes they're treated very well, but oftentimes it's look at how comically detached they are. Right. Look at how every working class or poor person would enter a rich person's household and, and see it as basically a lunatic asylum. Yeah. Where everyone just gets to do whatever they mm-hmm. want and they there are no yeah, consequences. There, there, there's my servant, there's my pet dolphin. Oh, that one died, I'll get a new one. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. It's like it's all very it, it's it's actually kind of comforting to the poor to make fun of the rich. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But it's also showing up like this is what the rich are doing. Like it's actually like you look at something like My Man Godfrey. Mm. That rich family is very charming, but the movie is very critical of them. <laughs> like intensely critical of yeah. them, and it, it works out really really great. This movie doesn't find that approach. It doesn't find the a tone mm. that makes sense. It doesn't find a balance or even a meaningful theme other than the rich are assholes. They keep trying. Trying to play around with the idea, especially considering you know, the costumes of the party, mm. that this is some kind of Greek tragedy. Something really bad does happen at the end. All right. But it, a Greek tragedy teaches you something. Well, the, the idea every you know? time about Greek tragedy is that the hero has like one flaw that undoes them. Yeah. Is he on like completely undone by the end? I mean, he is, but at the but not like I'm. I'm no, I mean like completely undone. Not, like, that's li- th- like living in the gutter. See kind that of, yeah. that would be the contemporary version of this. Mm. Like you know, the Greek tragedy, death is enough mm. for for most of it. But today, when you consider how much uh, this movie focuses on cats, not now. Thank you, thank you. I don't I don't like it either. The cat's tragic flaws that they're cats. Economic disparity is indeed a problem. Thank you, cats. Um, But, uh, you know, they're focused so much on the lifestyle and how this lifestyle has detached them from reality Mm. that you're right. The only way to sort of get anyone's comeuppance to come is to remove that lifestyle. Mm. But the movie doesn't want to go there. I think the movie Mm. is more concerned with the idea that there's nothing that can be done. This is like this perpetual historical cycle. Well, this historical cycle of which the wealthy are always this way. Mm. Um, But it doesn't. Well, that would be a comment too. If like he does these horrible things that would undo him, but like his buddies rescue him anyway, and he learns nothing. That's 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 another way you could tell that story. That's not how it ends. I think the way it ends kind of makes sense on paper, but in actuality, feels like just contrived and kind of a cop-out. And mm. it's a damn shame because it's a great cast. The idea on paper seems like it'd be a goldmine for comedy. Mm. Uh, but the two problems are it's unfocused. Okay. And and this is probably the biggest problem. It's not funny. 
That's that's an issue. That's it's an just issue with a comedy funny. film. Isn't I think it? I think I, I and it's and it's a dry humor. It's not broadly comedic. It's mm-hmm. not like obviously it's not like an Adam Sandler kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you know they're they're trying to be witty. They're trying to be funny and. I'm trying to. It's one of those movies where if you're watching a comedy and it's supposed to be a comedy, mm-hmm. regardless of the type of comedy, yeah. If you can count the number of times you laughed, <laughs> that's bad. Yeah. Three. Ooh. That's what greed got me. All right. Three laughs. It's not unwatchable, mm. but I only laughed three times, and I don't feel like I got anything meaningful out of it. Yeah. So I'm not an expert in Michael Winterbottom's films. I don't know. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Mm-hmm. That if you'd, I'd seen all of his other films with Steve Coogan, mm-hmm. maybe I would be picking up on some subtleties. Maybe I'd be more used to his style. Maybe I'd be more on his wavelength. I allow for that. But mm-hmm. I, it actually got me thinking about, like, there are a lot of prolific filmmakers out there. And one of, and one of the easiest ways you can, like, learn a lot about cinema is to find the, you know, three or four dozen greatest filmmakers of all time right. and watch all their films. Like, mm. you'll learn a lot about cinema if you watch every Spike Lee movie. You'll learn a well, lot about cinema yeah. if you watch every Truffaut movie. The problem with that is that if you watch all of Spike Lee's movies, you'll learn how movies are made by Spike Lee. True, and I'm not saying that's the end-all, be-all, but it's it's a decent way to have an education, at it, least part of it. It, it uh, If you're looking to educate yourself in the language of cinema, the best way to go about it is to watch bad movies. Uh, <laughs> and I'm totally serious I about know. that, because... When you're, if you are at least passingly familiar with the actual language of film, mm-hmm. and then you see somebody do it wrong or badly or even just a little bit off, mm-hmm. your mind can correct it, and you kind of understand a lot better yeah. how cinema functions. I 100% uh, agree with this, and I've been espousing this myself for a long time. But I do believe that the first part of that should not be overlooked, which is you need to know how it works to begin exactly. with. Okay, so fine. you need a baseline education. Mm-hmm. In cinema, before only so what, studying bad stuff will really teach you a lot. What fundamental error is Michael Winterbottom making? Well, I don't know, and that's not that's not the point I was trying to make. Oh, okay. My point is, is that if you look at like, and a lot of people do this, like, oh, I, I love Steven Spielberg movies, but mm. I haven't seen them all. Okay. I'll see every Steven Spielberg movie, or maybe um, I don't know, someone only just saw their first Claire Denis film last year when they saw mm. High Life, and they're like, oh, she's amazing. Mm. I'll see the rest of her films. Watching Greed, and it's not my first Michael Winterbottom film, but it's pretty close, made me think about what of the great filmmakers, or even just the the good filmmakers, uh-huh. what's a film that if this was your first film you saw from them, you wouldn't mm. be interested in seeing anything else? Ooh. Um, right? Yeah. Like, uh, even great filmmakers make stinkers from time to time. Yeah, and... like, uh, 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 what was that? Steven Spielberg made a TV movie called Duel that everyone loves because it's mm. awesome. Yeah. He also made a TV movie that sucks ass called Something Evil. <laughs> Which nobody talks about. Nobody talks about. It's actually yeah. hard to track down, but I did it, and it's it's really bad. It's about a family that moves into a house, and the mom thinks there's a ghost, and no one believes her. And yeah. That's a perfectly yeah, fine yeah, setup yeah. for a horror movie. Uh-huh. Spielberg does nothing with it until the end ending, and the ending doesn't make any sense. Great. So it just sucks. And if that was my first Spielberg film, I'd be like, why would I want to see more from this guy? Yeah, well, sometimes they, uh, a filmmaker can pleasantly surprise you. I True. saw like two or three David Ayer films hating him because he did these overop cop dramas and I don't care. And then I saw End of Watch and that's actually a very masterful film. Agreed. Dealing with the same topics he was exploring before, it's just he did it right this time. And then he mm. followed that up with Fury, which is a good war picture. I think it's a brilliant war yeah. picture. Um, I, uh, you like it more than I do? I don't hate Fury. I think I think it's fine. Yeah. Um 
And then he made the Suicide Squad, but we're not going to talk about that. Yeah, uh, a, he made a he, you know tried, okay, tried, uh, ups and downs. He, ups and downs, he hadn't yeah. had a hit in a while. He needed a, he, he made a movie for the <laughs> he, for the studio. He also made Bright, which a lot of people kind of forgot I still about. I haven't seen that. I have no mm. interest, honestly. Uh, it, it's it's not as bad as it got credit for, but it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's more watchable than you might think, but yeah. uh, there's, there's a lot of just bad metaphors and ideas in, sure. that, in that movie. Uh, so yeah, David Ayer, I was ready to write him off, but then he surprised me. Yeah. So I just, uh, I just think it's interesting. Like we all have, mm. uh, unless you actively set out with like a very specific curriculum mm. to learn about the works of certain filmmakers, the first film of theirs you watch can be kind of yeah. important in terms of like how eager you are to see more. Like again, if Dario Argento, if your first Dario Argento film was Suspiria yeah, well, yeah. or Deep Red or The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, you would go, ooh, I need to see everything. If your first Dario Argento film was Dracula was Dario Argento's Dracula or, or Mother of, of the Tears Opera, or, yeah, 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 of you'd be like, films. I have no interest and I don't understand why everyone thinks this guy is great. Um, I, uh, I had the opposite problem. I, I saw Brain Donors in 1992, uh. which is directed by Dennis Dugan. It's like, oh, this guy has a really good eye for slapstick comedy because that is a really frantic, high-energy Marx Brothers pastiche which nails every single scene. It's hilarious. Uh-huh. He also did Beverly Hills Ninja. He also did <laughs> Big Daddy. He did a lot of yeah. uh, the, the Adam Sandler movies. Uh, didn't he do Ridiculous Six? No, he didn't do Ridiculous Six, but he did do Just Go With It, Grown Ups, Grown Ups 2, Jack and Jill... Uh, and you don't mess with the Zohan. Also, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. So he's been doing like just a lot of dot after dot after duds. It's like a lot of them made money. So every time I go in and see a Dennis Dugan film, I, I resign myself to the fact that he's making just sort of a lot of garbage films these days. Mm. But I always hope. I always you know, hope that one's going to come out and be as funny as Brain Donors. I actually, I, someone was having, uh, someone asked me like mm. online. They were just like, because they're they've been talking about this for a long, long time mm. about remaking Clue. How we're gonna do okay. another clue. Yeah. I love the original clue. It's one of my mm. favorite comedies. Just the, period. The, I think it's impeccable gold. Impeccable comedy. Yeah. I think it's gold. Mm. I love the way it starts real slow and, and then, practical and then just ramp, gradually like ramp, until yeah. everyone's <laughs> literally sprinting through every scene. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant comedy. I love it to pieces. One of my favorites. But some people were talking about how, like, oh, well, you know, you can't just get anyone to direct the sequel. You should get like someone who is Hey, hey. Sergio, I'm also mad about the Clue Split remake. Split it up, you two. But someone was like, we need to get someone who is a genuinely great like, comedy so, director. Someone who can balance someone, all of that like, stuff. Like a true yeah. genius. And mm. we can't just get someone who has made you know, a bunch of just studio comedies. Mm. To which I pointed out that the director of Clue also, also. did Sergeant Bilko. <laughs> and the Distinguished Gentleman mm. and Nuns on the Run. And yeah, he made some... Really, really good comedy too. He did My Cousin Vinny. His name is Jonathan Lynn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, did, but uh, he's not like this proli- director who made tons and tons of brilliant comedies. He made like a couple of brilliant yeah. comedies, a couple of popular comedies that weren't particularly good, yeah. and some real crap. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not necessarily like a guarantee, you know. I, I, like sometimes people yeah. who are not necessarily known can produce something really brilliant, yeah. and vice versa. Uh, Mike, Michael Winterbottom, I think he's in a position where he's doing. Uh, uh, Steve Coogan's will. Or, well, actually, Steve Coogan wasn't wasn't originally on this project. Oh no, kidding! Okay. It was originally going to be Sasha Baron Cohen, and then Sasha Baron Cohen dropped sense, out, right. and then Steve Coogan because I guess he because they worked together so many times before stepped in. 
Okay. So this isn't actually one of those. This isn't like oh, a Steve okay. Coogan joint that made Winterbottom. Winterbottom's just sort of okay. Never this mind. This is a Winterbottom then. joint that, that Steve all, Coogan. That, did. I, I saw the two, the two theatrical release, the Trip movies, mm-hmm. and that that's what that felt like. Like well, Steve, yeah. Stephen Coogan and I forgot who his co-star was, but it was their movie. They were yeah. kind of making it up, and Winterbottom was just sort of filming it. Um, but not to say that he didn't have like, like a directorial hand. No, but it was clearly it was clearly Steve Coogan's mm-hmm. creative well, baby. Um, unlike yeah. uh, Winterbottom's best film, which is the Tristram Shandy movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called The Cock and Bull Story. Uh, I thought that was hilarious because I've actually I'm one of the few people Americans who's read the Tristram Shandy novel, but uh, that was him doing a lot of sort of artistic flair and bringing a lot of interesting ideas to this mm. thing. Even though Steve Coogan was the the lead, so yeah. this is not like a Steve Coogan joint. But, no, but it, doesn't, it, it doesn't Sasha, feel like a Steve Coogan. You joint. said it was a Sasha Baron Cohen project before, well, which makes so me it looks feel like, like the main character was supposed to carry this. I feel like what this this really does feel like. Mm. It probably should have been more improvisational in terms of how off the cuff mm-hmm. it should have been. It's not really like a faux documentary, but it's got a lot of that kind of basic storytelling structure. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you had gotten like some, I mean, some people are really, really good at it. Like, I really like Isla Fisher in this. Mm-hmm. I think she's really excellent in it. But um, I feel like if this had had almost, if this had had a waiting for Guffman vibe. I think okay. you could have had something really great here. Like, can you imagine, like, a like Waiting a for Guffman kind of mockumentary thing, yeah. with just the funniest people in the world, and they're all going to or working at a party for a billionaire who's completely detached from reality? Yeah. That's not a bad setup for a movie. I'd pay to see that movie. Mm. But here, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's, it doesn't feel aloof enough to be bright and breezy and funny. Mm. And it also doesn't feel pointed and sharp and focused enough to be more than that. Oh, so too, it's very frustrating. I'm so on, on the critically acclaimed scale, let's review some movies. On the critically acclaimed scale of C- to C+, where C is an average motion picture, C- is a below average motion mm. picture, and C- is above average. And above average can be everything from good to great, and below average can be everything from not very good to awful. Uh, greed is a mild C-. Okay. It's not unwatchable. There are infinitely worse films. But... It lacks focus. It's not funny. Mm. I don't know which, how much more I can say. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> uh, all the Bright Places. All the Bright Places is a high C. Mm. Um, it, it is emotionally honest in an important way. I think Justice Smith uh, goes a long way to carry this from something that might feel sort of cliched and, and sappy. Uh, I think it it does strike a really good balance, but it's teetering right on the edge of something much, much worse. And you can see that happening. All right. Uh, St. Francis. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this is a really striking, wonderful, insightful motion picture. And I think Kelly O'Sullivan in particular is clearly a find. Like, it's clearly someone who has, like, a career ahead of her, and I can't wait to see what she does next, because I got a lot out of this movie. This film is is wise and sensitive and emotionally smart, and I I really, really loved it. It's definitely a C+. Uh, And The Invisible Man. Mm. That's also a C+. Terrifying, one of the better films this year, Mm. definitely. Two, two really great ones this week. So, I think so. Yeah, really great. Yeah, The Invisible Man, absolutely brilliant horror movie. I think this is one we're going to be talking about for a long time to come just because mm. it took a classic character and found what made that character work in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And just zeroed in on it and told that story from a, in a slightly different way. Made it its own. Luca is very opinionated. <laughs> I believe Luca probably would like some lunch. 
He's knocking things over now. Luca would like some lunch, so we need to go feed the cats. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening to Critically Acclaimed this week. We'll be back next week with reviews of the new Pixar movie Onward, the new Ben Affleck basketball movie The Way Back. Not to be confused with the other film from 2011 called The Way Back. uh, Wasn't that The Way Way Back? Well, there's also a film called The Way Way Back. Damn it. But The Way Back was a film that... people completely forgot with Colin Farrell where he just walks and walks and walks and walks until his feet fall off Mm because he's escaping oppression. All right. At at what point in the Ben Affleck movie do like a dog and a little boy like travel back in time? Uh, The 20 minute mark. Cool. Uh, The Wayback Machine. Thank you very much. Uh, And we'll also be uh, reviewing the uh, new horror thriller Beneath Us, which I think has flown under some radars. Uh, So that's coming next week. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for subscribing on the podcast service that you subscribe on. Thank everybody for taking the time to leave us a review, star rating, whatever you can do that helps us find new people. Mm. And a very special thank you to everyone on our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. That's where you get to vote for future episodes of our shows. Mm. Uh, You get to get a whole bunch of bonus content. We're about to do a very special podcast reviewing The Parent Trap 2, starring Haley Mills and and Haley Haley Mills and two... Awful children. And, Just and, evil kids. And a evil. Frothy, luscious hunk of man played by Tom Skerritt. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Slice me off a chunk of that. Yeah, they, um, so that's coming. They, they talk about him like he's a young Rob Lowe. <laughs> Um, so that's coming as well in addition to all the other cool podcasts we got going on over there and if you want to email us about any of the movies we talked about today any of the topics we talked about today anything you want to know about movies Hmm. TV pineapples I don't know whatever you want you can email Hmm. us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and we answer your questions every week on our show Hmm. we've got mail so I think that's it Oh, Twitter? We're on Twitter at Critically Acclaimed? Oh, no. Indeed we are. We're not at Critically Acclaimed. We're at, critic, was, we're at critic Acclaim. Because Critically Acclaimed is too many letters for Twitter. Thanks, Twitter. You know, they, they are all about brevity. That's why it's called Twitter. There's little tweets. Twitter was bought out by, uh, like, some super packs. I know. It's, it's, a, it's a disinformation machine, but you can find us in there. Yeah, we're there. <laughs> Giving real information and telling funny dukes. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Thank you, everybody, once again. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>